trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can safely gather, question the dominant narratives around us, and hopefully come away with a better idea of what's really going on in the world around us, as well as how we can best use our influence, you know, to shape the world in a, in a more positive way. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Just want to take a moment here to talk about LifesavingFood.com. Uh, I don't know if you have given much thought to food storage. I'm guessing if you listen to this program, you're probably someone who is at least you're into self-reliance at some level. And you probably already have some pretty good preparations in place, and that is good. There's peace of mind that comes from that. I'm not, I don't have to tell you that. If you are thinking of bolstering your current preps, if you're looking at what's going on around us and saying, I think maybe this would be a good time to, you know, fill in a few holes or or get serious about it. I mean, right now, you know, the only thing I'm seeing empty shelves on is bottled water at the grocery store. I want you to click on the link in my show notes at the com for lifesavingfood.com. Now, they've got starter food kits, long-term supply, survival kits, meats, vegetables, fruits, eggs. But uh, take a look at the different packages they have to author, offer. rather, See what they have that might uh, round out your preps. And then take a nice 10% off the purchase price when you use the checkout code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. Pretty simple. Appreciate them being a sponsor. I hope you'll do business with them. Let's jump in. On the idea of enemy-driven thinking, I think it was a blogger by the name of the Z-Man who introduced me to this concept several years ago. And up until that point, I hadn't really realized how much I had been engaging in enemy-driven thinking. So let me give you just an example of what that looks like. We all know people who are more driven by who or what they're against than what they're for. I mean, for some people, it's a, it's a very singular issue. I've got a really good friend. He's a good guy, really trying to do good in the world. But I'm telling you, the hill, the hill this guy wants to die on is illegal immigration. Ooh, he does not like the idea that, uh, that they are coming across the border and they are taking our jobs and they are bringing COVID. Rah, rah, rah. Now, it's not to say that there isn't a real problem. I think there, there is, in fact, you know, some, some serious consequences that are coming from an unchecked flow across that southern border. But approaching it from the standpoint of being either enemy-driven or not enemy-driven is going to determine how a person looks at it. If you feel anger, and if anger is one of the driving dynamics in your day, oh, I'm so mad at Trump, I'm so mad at Pelosi, I'm so mad at the Democrats or Antifa or whomever. That's a pretty good indicator that you're letting enemy-driven thinking move you. And and I don't mean to be insulting when I point this out. To me, this was really kind of an interesting revelation when I read uh, the Z-Man's take on this. Basically, his take was, look, there are different uh, different mediums out there, different platforms, if you will, 
and they base their audience on the level of sophistication that that audience is capable of of understanding. So for the enemy-driven, that would be like the lowest tier of information. And again, I'm not not trying to insult anybody. This was his interpretation. Uh, Alex Jones, front page mag, uh, people like Pamela Geller, people who are constantly going, the Muslims are going to ruin this country. The Mexicans are going to ruin this country. People who are just looking at others, pointing at them and saying, you know, hate. And by the way, this happens a lot on the political left as well. I can't think of a more hate-driven organization than the folks who show up for Antifa get-togethers. The second level of sophistication is probably where most of us would find ourselves, and that would be along the, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh at the time when he was alive, uh, Sean Hannity, etc. Essentially, mainstream mouthpieces. And there are, you know, left-wing or liberal counterparts to this, too. But uh, Keith Olbermann would be like in the lowest tier, very unsophisticated. It's just hate, just anger, <laughs> just, you know, the, they are driven by, you know, this, this idea that somebody doesn't think like I do and it's intolerable. There's more nuance as you move up in, in sophistication. And I think you saw this with, with Hannity and with Limbaugh and with others. Um, you know, some people would scoff at sophistication. I don't put that with them, but okay. Take it to the next level, though, and, you know, you're getting places like uh, Foreign Affairs, right? This is the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations. And you read the way that their articles are written. I mean, they can be controversial, but you don't hear the, the labeling, the name calling, the appeals to emotion that you hear further on down those tiers. So I hope this makes some sense. You know, when it comes to being enemy driven, yeah, there are a lot of people trying to persuade you to uh, to take that attitude, take that mindset of it's us versus them. And as long as, you know, them, you know, doesn't include whatever tribe you belong to, well, they're fair game. I think it's a dangerous way to think. And I was very happy to see this article by Joaquin Book. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. Can enemies be our friends? It was kind of fun, too, to learn a little bit about uh, Joaquin Book's journey. Because I was very enemy-driven, you know, early in my talk radio career. I threw lots of red meat. I, I tried to get the emotional, shocking, you know, kind of, of topics that would get my audience riled up. And I was good at it. I mean, it, it, it worked. It generated a very large, loyal audience. But aside from getting people riled up, I don't know that it really did that much good. It brings a lot of drama. It brings a lot of theater. It does not necessarily bring information or understanding that actually causes people to, you know, aspire to something better. Interestingly enough, I've watched as my audience shrank as as my approach changed. And I don't want to sound pompous for saying this, but I'm still convinced that this is a better path than the enemy-driven one. Yes, enemy-driven thinking works, but there's a better way. And I think uh, that uh, those of us who really are trying to use our our influence and to have impact in positive ways, we have to be careful not to bring more anger into the situation. I'm going to share with you a few excerpts here from Joaquin Book's article. He says, when I came of age as a blatantly ideological environmentalist, gender activist, teetotaler, and quasi-socialist, These many different values were fairly detached. 
He says, the issues that engaged me in my late teens and early 20s didn't neatly fit together into a political party or cross-sectional movement unified by a core common belief. But he says, I still cherished them and thought of them as different ways to do good to be the change you wish to see in the world. Joaquin Book says, I was interested in what was right, fair, and useful, as is often the case for youngsters starting out ideologically and personally. It wasn't always clear what any of those things meant or how one's actions brought those goals into being. He says, often it took the shape of feeling good rather than doing good. A gut feeling of what was the right thing to do, frequently overruled or amplified by reason or some out-of-context study I had read. He says, I convinced myself that eating meat was unnecessary, unhealthy and superfluous, and most certainly inconsistent with my green ideals. I saw no benefits to alcohol, and some of its appalling sides had me refusing to drink anything at all until just a few years ago. He says, it seemed fake to me to only be able to shift your mood or align actions with beliefs under the influence, and cowardice not to own up to your actions afterwards. He says, I didn't like what at the time seemed like arbitrary decisions on how men and women ought to behave, dress, what they should like, or to whom they should be attracted. So I did everything in my power to upend those performed behaviors, to critically question oppressive structures, as the jargon now goes. But listen to this. He says, needless to say, I don't think I was easy to be around. Joaquin Book says, if you were willing to overlook these talking points for a moment and hang out, we could still be great friends. Strangely enough, though, he says, I surrounded myself with the oddest group of people whose company I enjoyed. Macho and foul-mouthed soccer players who are constantly trying to get laid, nerdy people who are very mature and relationship-minded already at 17, gorgeous feminists who refused to shave their armpits, Nietzsche-reading contrarians who regularly ditched class and smoked anything that could be smoked, legal or not, a few early girlfriends who were either completely uninterested in political topics but into nature and forest tea about a decade before I was, or so obsessed with the good fight that most of our relationship consisted of arguing. Now he says there were also some pretty normal people, too, who didn't care much for the topics that obsessed me, and therefore they never came up in our grand non-political friendships. The key is... He says, in each of these people's companies, I found value and friendship and bliss. We're going to come back to this on the other side of the break. He has a fascinating story to tell, and I think there's a lesson here for each of us as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Sharing with you an article from Joaquin Book from the American Institute for Economic Research. Can enemies be our friends? And he shares some personal personal experience about, you know, his young ideological self growing up. And how he had a pretty solid take on this is what the world ought to be. But some of the people he hung out with were very, very different. And yet, in each of those persons' companies, he says, I found value, friendship, and bliss. Now, for an enemy-driven person, most people would be like, what? How is that possible? They're your enemy. They don't stand for the same things. I don't even shop at a store that supports this or that. We all know people who are like this. Listen to how Joaquin Book describes why he was able to find value and trusted friendships 
in these relationships. He says, my Nietzsche reading friend had a precocious fascination for philosophy and a genuine desire for finding truth, no matter how the super, no matter the superficial arguments he had to wade through to get there or the conventional wisdom he had to upend. The soccer player always made me laugh and was one of the kindest and most considerate people I ever knew, his sexist language and masculine posturing aside. The not-armpit-shaving feminist was ridiculously well-read in European literature and remarkably tolerant and blasé about what should and shouldn't be, what the kids today would call chill. Now, he says, some of my feminist friends drank boatloads of alcohol. Many of my teetotaling friends could be remarkably masculine or gender stereotypic. He says, most of my LGBT crowd loved the booze, and only my Green Party friends were hyper-focused on climate impact, impact rather, and minimizing footprint as I was. But he says, one of the really first really important things that I ever wrote was a melancholic essay on what it felt like being caught in the middle, not belonging anywhere, not being understood or fully accepted by any of the ideological groups I was attached to. Terrible cliché for a teenager not to belong, perhaps, but enough so for a writing contest to award me the lordly sum of $600. Now, he says, although occasionally painful and often quite profound, many of the experiences that I condensed into that essay taught me something that I think most people used to know and instinctively understand, but many of us have now forgotten. That someone can be a good person, even if they make choices different from yours. That close friends are dear to you because of what you've gone through together, what you share, and how they make you feel, not because of how they vote, which ideological persuasions drive them, and what positions they've taken on this or that topic. He says, I reminisce on these long-lost years as we seem to have lost that something that I naturally possessed back then or painfully acquired, which is the ability to separate values, ideas, or political statements from what it takes to be a good person. Joaquin Book says, in our woke times, a disagreement over unsettled issues might be the end of your career, even if you spoke wrong speak 20 years ago when that was allowable opinion. Lots of staff at Penguin, one of the big five publishers, felt threatened and uncomfortable with Jordan Peterson merely publishing his latest book there. The New York Times, the pinnacle of the fourth estate in the West, ousted Barry Weiss for publishing broad-tent conservative views. Your party affiliation, not to mention your fluency in the new speak of intersectional power analysis, is increasingly becoming a hygiene factor for engaging with anyone let alone getting a job in many industries. Try academia without it. He says, I recently had the misfortune to be on a date with someone who quickly made sure I knew that human rights were non-negotiable. What does that even mean? And that prime among those human rights were trans rights. Uh Uh-huh, I thought, and wondered what that arcane and peripheral topic had to do with our potential relationship. And he says, it turns out I was merely behind the curve. Wendy Wang's research shows that cross-party affiliations in marriage are becoming increasingly rare. YouGov reported a survey last year where around 40% of both Republicans and Democrats would be upset if their child married someone from the other party. And even larger size studies than that, like Match.com's Singles in America report, show that the proportion of people who think it impossible for them to date across party lines is increasing fast from around one-third in 2012 to over half in 2020. Around 70% of Democrats and some 50% of Republicans would consider a ballot for the wrong candidate in 2016 a deal-breaker for their future relationship. 
And the share of survey respondents who say that it's important for their partners to share their political beliefs has skyrocketed in the last few years after having held steady since records began. Now, he says a few years ago, Leavers versus Remainers tore a deep divide through British society. And family, friends, and relationships happened to find themselves on either side of that unbridgeable gap. The Trump and anti-Trumpers have played a similar role in America. In the last 18 months or so, most of these considerations have given way for an even more pernicious and deep-rooted divide, and that is the COVID stance. In all aspects of life, people whose expertise doesn't warrant them to have an opinion one way or another, and people whose interests in political, economical, or epidemiological topics are non-existent, are forced to take an active stance on all manner of everyday things. Whether and when to wear a mask, whether or not to cancel visits from others, whether or not to travel or meet strangers and how, whether or not to inject themselves with substances which some tell them are dangerous and others say are crucial and life-saving. And if you make the wrong choice, well, much hate is now coming your way. He says polarization and balkanization are words that get thrown around in political discourse, in media outlets and information acquisition. But he says the more damaging consequences happen when we integrate those tribalist political divides into our regular lives. When we banish the unvaxxed from our weddings or we cancel family gatherings because of concerns that one set of invitees are offended at personal choices made by another set of invitees. He says over half of Republicans have progressive friends, but less than one third of Democrats count a Republican among their friend group. And it's increasingly clear that we don't understand where the other is coming from, ideologically and morally speaking. And so he asks, can people no longer be wrong on scientific questions and still be good human beings? Can people no longer hold different values than you and still be reasonable, upstanding, respectable individuals? He says, I'm sure that people of all ages and times have failed in separating political statements and values from the person behind the opinion. But like all people with a present bias, prone to romanticizing the past, he says, I think it looks worse now. Perhaps this inability of ours to separate personality from opinion has moved into social, professional, and emotional fields it didn't do before. Maybe highly centralized structures have pushed too many one-size-fits-all approaches that make conflicts inevitable. Submission or defiance become the only two options when we're forced to make an irrelevant choice. There's so much wisdom in that line, by the way. Wow. Just apply it to vaccines, for instance. Anyway, he concludes by saying, even if they have external effects, many or most of the things that divide us are none of anyone else's damned business. What we eat, what we drive, what we wear, what what medical procedures we have, what we drink or whom we love. And he asks, when did we forget that? That's a pretty thoughtful essay. And I think it's a timely one, too. Not because, you know, you need to become touchy-feely and validate everyone who comes into your presence. But I will suggest to you, it is absolutely, entirely possible to love people who hold diametrically opposed points of view to your own. You can still see the value. You can still find common ground if you want to. But sadly, a lot of people say no. No! I'm digging in my heels. I'm right, and until they admit that I'm right, you know, I'm, I'm not going to back off. I wonder how many opportunities we miss, how many experiences we miss. And I'm, I don't mean to change someone's mind. 
I just mean simply to be blessed by having that person in your life and to be, you know, able to experience their influence and their personality because we put on our blinders. Nope, nope, you don't see things my way. There's no way you and me could be friends. You know, if it sounds like I'm, I'm being a little accusatory, it's probably the, the guilt I feel for how many years I have spent laboring in that mental dungeon of my own creation. But I make a very honest effort to not be enemy-driven or fear-driven. And I do find greater peace, happiness, and a greater appreciation of the people around me, regardless of what they think. So, on that basis, I recommend it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Please go to my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com. And I would encourage you to check out my sponsors like Heather, like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. It's such a crazy real estate market right now, particularly throughout the Intermountain West. And for those of my listeners in the state of Utah, if you are looking for a loan, whether it's a VA loan, traditional loan, reverse mortgage, maybe just uh, refinancing your existing mortgage, you really need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. They're at 619 South Bluff Street. Call them at, at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and yes, Patriot Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, looking at uh, some of the, the different competing points of view out there, I'm always curious, when, when someone is really being ruthlessly censored, as in whatever video they, they made has been yanked immediately from, uh, from YouTube or any of the other major big tech platforms, I always have to wonder, what is it that they have to say that someone thinks is so dangerous, so scary that I can't even be permitted to, to look at it? It may, it may corrupt me just, just to even consider it. I mean, they did this with Rand Paul's uh, urge to, urging people to, to resist, to fight back against the mandates that, that, that are surely coming. I mean, we can see it coming. Then there's Dr. Dan Stock. He's a family physician who recently spoke up during a school board meeting in Mount Vernon, Indiana. And the ferocity with which his comments are being yanked from most social media platforms legitimately sparked my curiosity about, well, what does this guy have to say? Now, I'm including a link in the show notes if you want to watch it for yourself. But I want to play just a little six-minute excerpt of his comments here and ask you to decide for yourself if his viewpoint is so dangerous that we ought to be shielded from it. Here he is. <laughs> Dr. Dan Stock, uh, 5777 West 700 North, McCordsville, Indiana. Um, to, to address your comment, gee, it's hard to believe we're 18 months into this and still having a problem. And I would suggest the reason we still have a problem is because we're doing things that are not useful. And we're getting our sources of information from the Indiana State Board of Health and the CDC, who actually don't bother to read science before they do this. Um, I'm actually a functional family medicine physician. That means I am specially trained in immunology and inflammation regulation. And everything being recommended by the CDC and the State Board of Health is actually contrary to all the rules of science. So things you should know about coronavirus and all other respiratory viruses, they are spread by aerosol particles, which are small enough to go through every mask. By the way, the literature that supports all of that is in a flash drive that we presented to you. It's been given to the secretary. 
As a matter of fact, it quotes at least three studies sponsored by the NIH to that exact fact, even though the CDC and the NIH have chosen to to ignore the very science that they paid to have done. Um, That is why you keep struggling with this, is because you cannot make these viruses go away. The natural history of all respiratory viruses is that they circulate all year long, waiting for the immune system to get sick through the winter or become deranged, as has happened recently with these vaccines, and then they cause symptomatic disease. Because they cannot be filtered out, and they have animal reservoirs, and this is a very important point, no one can make this virus go away. The CDC has managed to convince everybody that we can handle this like we did smallpox, where we could make a virus go away. Smallpox had no animal reservoirs. The only thing it learned to infect was humans. That's why we were able to make that virus go away. That will not happen with this any more than it will with influenza, the common cold, respiratory syncytial virus, adenoviral respiratory syndromes, or anything else that has animal reservoirs. So the reason you can't do this is because you're trying to do something which has already been tried and can't be done. Equally important is that vaccination changes none of this, especially with this vaccine. And I would hope this board would start asking itself, before it considers taking the advice of the CDC, the NIH, and the State Board of Health, why we are doing things about this that we didn't do for the common cold, influenza, or respiratory syncytial virus. And then ask yourself, why is a vaccine that is supposedly so effective having a breakout in the middle of the summer when respiratory viral syndromes don't do that? And to help you understand that, you need to know the condition that is called antibody-mediated viral enhancement. That is a condition done when vaccines work wrong, as they did in every coronavirus study done in animals, on coronaviruses after the SARS uh, outbreak, and done in respiratory syncytial virus, where a vaccine used in a vulnerable individual done the wrong way, which cannot be done right for a respiratory virus which has a very low pathogenicity rate, causes the immune system to actually fight the virus wrong and let the virus become worse than it would with native infection. And that is why you are seeing an outbreak right now. In fact, in that flash drive you're going to have coming to you and in the emails with six extra, there will be a study showing that 75% of people who had COVID-19 positive symptom cases in Barnstable, Massachusetts outbreak were fully vaccinated. Therefore, there is no reason for treating any person vaccinated any differently than any person unvaccinated. You should also know that no vaccine, even the ones I support and would give to myself and my children, ever stops infection. In 2014, there was outbreak of mumps in the National Hockey League. The only people who came down the symptoms were the people who were unvaccinated or unknown vaccine status. Boy, that sounds like a great argument for vaccines. But a question that you should ask yourself knowing that half of the people who came down with symptomatic disease had no contact with an unvaccinated or unknown vaccine status individual, where did they get the disease? And the answer was from the vaccinated individuals. No vaccine prevents you from getting infection. You get infected, you shed pathogen. This is especially true of viral respiratory pathogens. You just don't get symptomatic from it. So you cannot stop spread. You cannot make these numbers that you've planned on get better by doing any of the things you're doing because that is the nature of viral respiratory pathogens. And you can't prevent it with a vaccine because they don't do the very thing you're wanting them to do. And you will be chasing this the remainder of your life until you recognize that the Center for Disease Control and the Indiana State Board of Health are giving you very bad scientific guidance. And instead, read the articles that are going to come on the email and are on this flash drive and listen to the people in this audience here tonight who actually have recognized the advice they are getting from the CDC and the NIH is counterfactual. 
And that's why you're still fighting this with this vaccine that supposedly was going to make all of this go away. But it suddenly managed to make an outbreak of COVID-19 develop in the middle of the summer when vitamin D levels are at their highest. By the way, the other thing that would be necessary, any vaccine restriction to be considered is if there were no other treatment available. And I can tell you, having treated over 15 COVID-19 patients, that between active loading with vitamin D, ivermectin, and zinc, that there is not a single person who has come anywhere near the hospital. And we already have studies that show that if you achieve a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level greater than 55, your risk of COVID-19 death will drop down to one quarter of the population average for the United States. And there are active treatment trials included on that flash drive that show the same is true. So if you were going to discriminate based upon vaccine, you should also discriminate based upon 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, zinc taste test response, and probably previous infections, since there are also studies on that flash drive that show that people who have recovered from COVID-19 infection actually get no benefit from vaccination at all, no reduction in symptoms, no reduction in hospitalization, and suffer two to four times the rate of side effects if they are subsequently vaccinated. Therefore, the policies that you are basing on are totally counterfactual. I don't blame this board for that because I know you aren't scientists and you've thought it was reasonable to listen to the CDC, NIH, and the Indiana State Board of Health. But I would encourage that instead you listen to the people out here in this audience and read what's on that data drive. And if anybody here in this board has any questions about anything on that, I will happily come back and sit with you individually if you would like to explain the science behind this. And if you're worried about being sued by somebody because you don't follow the guidance of the CDC and the NIH, I will tell you have a free pro bono expert testimony at your disposal. I will testify in defense of this board, turning down all these recommendations for free at any time in any court. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Now, I know, you know, that's, that's okay. Well, that's his point of view, but I don't know. That sounds like some pretty wise and thoughtful recommendations from a uh, medical expert, yet it runs counter to what a lot of government leaders and other medical experts who, in many cases, have political ties to those government leaders are telling us. Now, I'm not saying that Dr. Dan Stock is the only one who knows what he's talking about. Excuse me. But I think we ought to at least consider whether or not we are getting the straight scoop from those who are claiming authority over our lives, for those who are saying, you know, you have to do this. We have no choice but to do it this way. Seems pretty clear that uh, there is not absolute consensus. So when somebody says, trust the science, follow the science, what they're meaning is follow whichever expert I agree with. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I think it's worth your time. I think Rumble is, is the only video platform I've found so far that is still carrying Dr. Dan Stock, but... What he has to say, well, it's worth considering. I'm not a doctor, not a researcher, so I can't tell you, well, you know, factually he's right here, but he kind of fudged it here. But I think it's absolutely essential that we have access to such points of view so that we can make decisions with informed consent about what we will or will not do involving our own personal health and autonomy. I've said it before, and I'll reiterate The intensity with which people are trying to coerce and force others to make these decisions is a huge red flag. I don't think they have our best interest at heart. So I will continue to seek out those alternative viewpoints. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. So uh, yesterday was kind of an interesting day where I live in the Intermountain West. The uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a pretty, pretty strong influence. Heavy, heavy Mormon influence throughout Utah, throughout much of Idaho. And uh, yesterday, the leadership of the LDS Church uh, sent out a press release urging its members, please, you know, get vaccinated, wear masks, do what you can to help uh, bring this pandemic to an end. And I think it's very well-intentioned, but man, I'm telling you, it, it the divide between the maskers and the non-maskers and the vaccinators and the non-vaccinators just got a whole lot deeper, like an order of magnitude deeper. And it's a little bit concerning. Now, I, I don't care what decisions a person makes. I have no right to force them. And that's the message I'm trying to get across here. I may be personally suspicious or, or hesitant to accept that this vaccine is exactly what you need. My conscience is telling me otherwise. And so when, when religious leaders come out like this, you know, I mean, I, I believe, I'm trying to ascribe good intentions to what they're doing. I really believe they're trying to do the best they can to be good global citizens. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're, they're seeking to deflect government criticism or attention. I don't know. But I know for those who are resistant to the ongoing coercion and pressure to vaccinate, you probably see the writing on the wall. And and it's simply this. Life is about to become very difficult for those of us who have abstained from the vaccine. There's a great article by Daisy Luther published on today's LewRockwell.com website. And it's titled, Shocking and Dehumanizing Discrimination Against the Unvaccinated is about to make life very difficult. Now, I want to share this with you, but I want to share this with this, uh, this caveat. I'm not trying to, to scare you. I'm not trying to make you feel like, oh, man, I'm a victim. I think this is just a reality that, that has to be faced squarely. And, and for a lot of people, it's going to be more than they're going to want to take on. I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing this. My, my daughter got the ultimatum yesterday. You want to work here at the hospital? You're going to have to get the vaccine. That or she has to have an ironclad religious exemption, which it looks like, uh, you know, her church just slammed the door on that. Nope, no religious exemption. So a lot of people are being put in a position where they're literally having to choose. Will I keep my job or not? And this is just the beginning. That's the part that kind of makes me feel a chill run up my spine when I think about it. Daisy Luther says, all over the world, the hot-button subject of the moment is the COVID vaccination. Many governments discuss making it mandatory, a terrifying concept for people who believe the vaccine is unsafe. But perhaps even more appalling are the shocking things that people are saying about those who are unvaccinated. Now, she points out here, this article isn't about whether the vaccine is safe or not. I'm not urging anyone to get the vaccine, nor am I urging anyone to avoid it. She says, I believe that my health decisions are my choice and yours are your choice. She says, I hope that when you read these comments, whatever side of the debate you are on, you stop and think about your humanity. If this were done to any other group of people, it would be considered hate speech. 
because the mainstream media and the narrative are tightly controlled right now. This just isn't thought of as, as just acceptable, but a signal of superior virtue. And boy, has Facebook been lit up with it here of late. She talks about the danger of othering. Saying, we've already talked about how people would be encouraged, in quotation marks, to get the vaccine through a loss of liberty privileges. By now, those eager to get the vaccine have done so. And also those with valid reasons, like loss of income, have also gotten the jab. Therefore, holdouts who remain adamant they won't get the vaccine are now being exposed to a whole new level of encouragement via extreme social pressure. A phenomenon called othering is used in both the violent di- violence dynamics world and in brainwashing. Othering is when a person determines that another person is unworthy, threatening, or all-around inadequate and hardly even the same species. Othering is a process whereby a group of people is made to seem fundamentally different, even to the point of making that group seem less than human. This process can trigger instinctive emotional reactions towards members of that group. In many instances, othering has been used to degrade, isolate, and render people po- and render possible rather a group's discrimination, abuse, or persecution. And this has happened many times in history. When human beings were used as slaves and property, when human beings were the subject of horrific experiments, when the media and the people in power deliberately manipulated human beings to believe that other humans weren't like them and therefore it was permissible to mistreat or abuse them. As the saying goes, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And repeat it they are, says Daisy Luther. I think regardless of our stance, we can all agree that fervently wishing for bad things to happen to those who believe differently and dehumanizing them for their beliefs is pretty awful. As an example here, She includes in her article a clip from Don Lemon from CNN in which he says he believes the unvaccinated should not be allowed to buy food or work. And she asks, does this mean we should starve to death? Here, I want you to hear this in Lemon's own words. Um, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people are not going to agree with this, but um, don't get the vaccine. You can't go to the supermarket. Don't have the vaccine. You don't show it. Can't go to the ballgame. Don't have the vaccine. Can't go to work. You don't have the vaccine. Can't come here. No shirt, no shoes, no service. That's where I think we should be right now, because we continue to waste our breath on people who are just not going to change. They're, you know, the circular logic. They just keep going back and saying, well, it's my freedom. It's whatever. I'm free. Well, your kid's not free to give other kids meningitis in schools. You got to take a vaccine to do that. You got to take vaccines to, in order to get to be employed. So uh, what is the big deal? And all these people were saying, I don't want to put this stuff in my body. They're out drinking on the weekend and putting other substances in their bodies. That's way worse for them than a vaccine. So come on, let's be real. Yeah, look, there are people who have health exceptions. I think they're the very pronounced minority. Okay. That's Chris Cuomo weighing in there. But if you had any doubt, Lemon also says, how many people have to die if behavior is idiotic and nonsensical? I think you need to tell people their behavior is idiotic and nonsensical. Because that's the only two reasons that anybody could possibly object to not having the vaccine, right? They're either an idiot or they're just filled with nonsense. That's a pretty limited uh, you know, span of debate there. Well, it's either this or it's that. Talk about a false dilemma. 
And, you know, it's it's interesting that it's now very popular to blame the unvaccinated for all future cases of COVID. Daisy Luther points out that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's big kahuna of COVID, blames those not vaccinated for a new spike in cases. In fact, here's a quote from him in an interview with Face the Nation. We have 100 million people in this country who are eligible to be vaccinated who are not vaccinated. We've really got to get those people to change their minds, make it easy for them, convince them, do something to get them to be vaccinated because they are the ones that are propagating this outbreak. And then you have columnist Leanna Wen of the Washington Post who believes the unvaccinated are dishonorable. And she calls upon the CDC to mandate masks for everyone because of it. Quote, we need a return to indoor mask mandates, not because the vaccinated are suddenly a problem, but because we don't trust the unvaccinated to do the right thing voluntarily. It's not a commentary about the effectiveness of the vaccine or even the trickiness of the Delta variant, but rather about the failure of unvaccinated Americans to fulfill their societal obligation to act in the interest of everyone's health. When the CDC issued its mask guidance two months ago, it got the science right, but got the policy and communication wrong. And it has happened again, she says. The Biden administration should clarify that the backsliding of the United States pandemic progress necessitated the return of indoor masking. This has happened because of those who choose to remain unvaccinated. And the vaccinated are now paying the price. People want to impose financial penalties. They want to restrict where people can go. It's a really interesting article, and she gives plenty of examples of how the coercion is being ramped up. Such tolerant people. I'd like to see health care suspended for all COVID-related treatments. I know I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but the only group I've ever heard wish death on people are the people who are pushing for all the pro-lockdown, pro-vaccination, do-what-we-say-or-else approaches. It's pretty sickening. As Daisy Luther says, you know, imagine walking around thinking these things are justified. Imagine having that much hatred and disdain for those who don't share your opinion. So for what it's worth, here's my opinion. If you really want to know what to do, take it to God seriously. Ask the Creator what you should do. Do it and resist the urge to force other people to toe the line that you have chosen to toe. This is The Brian Hyde Show.